I remember uh, learning my doctrine of the Trinity and thinking uh, the more I learned history side by side, I started to notice something's off here. There, there seems to be a huge difference between the way we as evangelicals are uh, uh, really approaching the Trinity, um, the way that we understand the history of Trinitarian development and thought, and the way that it's been approached in the past. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. In the next several episodes, I am inviting some of today's top theologians onto the Credo Podcast to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I have just published a new book called Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this book, I point out that we are experiencing Trinity drift. We have drifted away from the biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and my book is meant to help you, help us, recover and retrieve a doctrine of the Trinity that is far more faithful. I invite you to join me in these next episodes as I sit down with these top theologians, and we reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity, not just what we believe, but how it also should affect our worship, our prayer, and so much more. Matthew, thank you for uh, initiating this conversation with me about your uh, your new book, Simply Trinity. Uh, and you know that uh, I'm a historian of, of evangelicalism, and you're a, a, a theologian. So in some ways, the, these <laughs> these topics have a, a relatively small amount of, of overlap. But actually, when I was uh, reading your book, I, I, I was, of course, I, I care a lot about, about theology, and I was realizing uh, how much uh, commonality uh, there is in, in our interests, because uh, obviously, uh, evangelicals have historically had all kinds of important theological commitments, but there's also a, a number of, uh, of problems historically that evangelicals have dealt with or or have not dealt with uh, as far as their their theological uh, emphases. And so I, I think we're going to just uh, start with talking about mostly about chapter one of uh, simply Trinity here. And uh, obviously, uh, anyone who's who's watching or, or listening to this should check out uh, check out your your book, but but I think mainly what we want to talk about is the history of evangelicalism and and also what you call uh, Trinity drift. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's it's really good to uh, the, the, you know get a theologian and a historian in the same room. So, well, so to speak, <laughs> so to speak, yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we you know kind of stay to our different disciplines and you know, go into our, our different offices and just kind of shut the door, that sort of thing. And, and, but being able to engage each other like this is, um, really helpful as, uh, you, you start to learn from one another. So, yeah, you know, the, this doctrine of the Trinity, of course, um, has a long history, but in evangelicalism, like you mentioned, um, 
in evangelicalism, it's been a bit of a of a roller coaster. You know, with your expertise on evangelicalism is so key here um, because you know when when you think over the the different marks uh, that you've outlined in some of your writings, you know, different marks of well, what is evangelicalism and and uh, what defines it? We think of things like um, an emphasis on the cross and the atonement. Uh, we could think, for example, of its, um, and these are good emphasis, emphases, uh, its emphasis on conversion and even activism. Um, we, could, we could also think of its emphasis on the Bible, also another really important emphasis, its, its commitment to the scriptures. But uh, sometimes history is not exactly in that same wheelhouse. Um, even a, not just a knowledge of history, but uh, sometimes there can be quite a, a suspicion towards history or uh, a heritage, which I, I sometimes find a bit um, ironic because um, sometimes evangelicals don't realize, hey, your, your heritage doesn't just go back maybe a, to Billy Graham. Um, and it doesn't just go back to say the Reformation; it actually goes back to the the early fathers and even the early church itself. Um, and I, sometimes I think this shows most on a doctrine like the Trinity. But I would I would love to hear first, just um, given your experience as a historian of evangelicalism, if do you do you get that type of a vibe <laughs> sometimes towards history from evangelicals? Yeah, definitely. Um, and and I think part of the reason is it, it's a byproduct of a good thing about evangelicalism, which is that there's such a focus on one's individual relationship with the Lord. Um, and uh, and so I think you know evangelicals uh, put such heavy emphasis on what came to be called a personal relationship with with Jesus. Mm. Um, early evangelicals talk more about walking the spirit, which is, a, you know, a, a little more biblically derived term. But, but um, the, the point is, is that uh, you, you're not just a, a nominal uh, Christian who happens to have been baptized as an infant into the church or, or something like that. You, you know, you have a, a transformative uh, encounter with the grace and power of God and in, in conversion. And so, you know, you understand as an evangelical, your uh, relationship with the Lord is, is direct uh, as you know, you, that we're a Royal priesthood and, um, and, and it's unmediated mm. uh, in important ways. And, 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 uh, and, and, and in a certain sense, it doesn't matter what other people, you know, is not, about what your mama believed or you know experienced, <laughs> it's about you, right? And 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 so uh, that's all good, but it but it can come with some unfortunate byproducts, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know the, this you know the old country song, me and Jesus got a good thing going. You know, yeah. I mean, I, it's, <laughs> it, that that can be theologically uh, problematic yeah. in lots of different ways, and and. Um, and, and even just the emphasis on the Bible alone uh, can have sort of anti-intellectual, anti-historical yeah. sort of sort of 
tendencies. Although I will say that that we know now that probably the anti-intellectual uh, side of evangelicalism has probably been exaggerated uh, by critics of evangelicals yeah. or or even just evangelicals who are bothered by this yeah. this uh, tendency. And and I I think that. Um, that, that evangelicals, uh, I, I, I even have a, a doctoral, uh, former doctoral student, Paul Guttaker, who's worked on this about in the Second Great Awakening, even uh, that, mm. that evangelical leaders were constantly citing uh, church history for, for defense of their uh, positions. So uh, it, it, it's probably a little more complex, uh, you know, historic as you things usually are, uh, yeah. than, than this you know, me and Jesus got a good thing going sort of caricature of evangelicals, but it's, it's definitely a problem. I didn't, I didn't think that we would be talking about country music, but, uh, well, if you talk to me long enough, it'll come (laughs) up. So, uh, who knew country music would have something to do with, uh, it has something to do with everything. Everything. right? Yeah. One example of this, uh, that, I mean, there's, there's many, of course, but um, one example of this would be uh, what I've called Trinity Drift. Um, yeah, and you know, this is just my 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 uh, fancy way of referring to what a lot of uh, both historians and theologians have pointed out before me in the, in the last several decades. Uh, what you know, when we well, even when I look at my own uh, evangelical experience you know i've i've uh, sort of born and bred within the the evangelical world um i i think back for example of some of those uh early textbooks that i uh was first trained on uh this was you know I, i'm getting a little bit older now but this was back in the day when there weren't uh just a plethora of systematic theologies like they're, they're starting to be you know more now but this was uh back when there was just <clears throat> uh, maybe one or two that were really the, just the standards. And I remember uh, learning my doctrine of the Trinity and thinking uh, the more I learned history side by side, I started to notice something's off here. There, there seems to be a huge difference between the way we as evangelicals are um, uh, really approaching the Trinity Um the way that we understand the history of Trinitarian development and thought and the way that it's been approached in the past. And I think the most, um, you know, it's the most obvious example of this is if you go back to uh, the nineties, for example, um, a great, great decade. Uh, But if you go back to the nineties and the two thousands, whether you're at an academic conference or whether you're, a student at a evangelical college, uh, a lot of the uh, textbooks at the time, uh, when they introduced the Trinity, were just m- missing core components. Um, what one example is the doctrine of eternal generation? It just wasn't there. If it was, it, it might be um, brought up, but with really severe suspicion or even criticism. And this was just uh, this was just part for the course. And then on top of that, I, I also noticed, you know, the, the way that the Trinity was uh, approached was very formulaic. 
And when I thought back to, well, how, how does salvation work? And how, how, how have I come to know the Trinity through the scriptures, through revelation itself? It wasn't so for, formulaic. It was a Trinity that was very much revealed in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So those two things in particular, just the absence or suspicion towards a doctrine like eternal generation, and then just uh, a, a very almost mathematical approach to the Trinity rather than something more organic, really stood out to me. And of course, early on, I had such a love of history, um, as I'm sure you did as well, that I, I started to notice that, goodness, this, uh, take, take a doctrine like eternal generation, uh, this doctrine was so, so crucial, so important that in the fourth century, the, the church fathers, they were, they were willing to put their lives on the line to defend it. But not only that, they when you look at something like the Nicene Creed um, in its history, we learn that, well, this doctrine was not only crucial um, to distinguishing the Son, uh, for example, from uh, the Father, but it was crucial to then defending and safeguarding the, the very deity and equality of the Son with the Father. Uh, right. So that was a huge, huge difference. And I noticed it, of course, in my evangelical kind of upbringing. But then also, of course, as research began and that sort of thing, I realized, oh, there's this has been there's a long history here through with evangelicalism that is just a very big contrast to historic Christianity. Yeah, I, and you know, I I had been aware of those debates uh, partly through some of your other work. Um, the again, as as you know, I'm approaching this as a historian, but also just you know, someone who teaches in an adult Sunday school class mm-hmm. uh, at, at an evangelical church. So that that's more often where I kind of wear my you know, such as it is, theology hat. And and, uh, and, and I, I was sort of shocked, you know, reading your, your book about uh, that this is, this is really kind of an acute problem. I mean, that, that, that you, you think always about, I mean, we as evangelicals are really good at criticizing liberals and higher critics for, yeah. you know, changing basic biblical doctrine and, you know, not paying attention to, you know, just, you know, the historic tradition of the church, but, but I mean, it seems like in, you know, I don't know when, when exactly this happened, late 20th century, that, that this change had, had come, but that you, you say that, you know, that, that this new idea about, you know, the social relations of the persons of the Trinity and so forth has really even just redefined the Trinity itself, which, which to me as a, Kind of just evangelical layperson sounds highly alarming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, this is something when we talk about social trinitarianism, I think we have. You're right. We have to go back to the last century, 20th century. Um, there was a all this buzz, you know, excitement um, over the doctrine of the Trinity in the 20th century. Uh, you had prior to that Protestant liberalism. Uh, had a stronghold in which, um, you know, you go all the way back to Schleiermacher and then more more into 20th century Protestant liberalism. There was uh, the traditional categories, uh, understanding of the Trinity was held in great um, 
suspicion. It was thought by some to be speculative. Part of the reason for that was uh, it was considered irrelevant to um, my what I experienced internally, my religious feeling of of uh, dependence, self conscious dependence on on the divine, and and so the Trinity, you know, and here I'm painting with broad strokes, but the Trinity was more or less the the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity was more or less pushed to the side. Well, you had all this buzz in the 20th century because you had giant theologians come on the scene and saying, oh, no, we're, they're reacting against, they're not evangelicals, but they're reacting against Protestant liberalism. And they're saying, actually, the Trinity is uh, extremely relevant to uh, Christianity and to society. But uh, the tricky part here is what happens next. Uh, it was one thing, to, you know, with all discussions, right? It's one thing to identify the problem, <laughs> uh, but where the solution is is sometimes controversial. And for for these uh, social trinitarians, you think of someone like uh, Moltmann, one, one of the most significant theologians of the last century. Uh, the Trinity then is redefined. Um, and so someone like Moltmann's very critical of, say, the Nicene uh, Creed or the pro, what we would call the pro-Nicene tradition and throws into question some of these, um, you know, traditional doctrines and instead uh, redefines the Trinity, not so much in terms of um, God's God is one and uh, doctrines like divine simplicity or uh, doctrines like eternal generation. Instead, uh, he redefines the Trinity as a type of society, uh, and not not for all of them, but for someone like Moltmann, uh, social trinitarianism really finds its identity in its reaction against monotheism. Monotheism is like a bad, dirty word because that's uh, hierarchy there, and uh, then that leads into a type of uh, tyrant or dictatorship in society. So in order to have the opposite effect, Moltmann very much then wants to see um, uh, in the Trinity uh, a type of society where the, the persons are really cooperating with one another. There's that type of equality. And there's relationships. Uh, so it's seen more in terms of uh, a societal interaction. And that then becomes the paradigm, even the prototype for politics itself, ecclesiology, uh, gender discussions, on and on and on. So once you get to the latter half of the the 20th century, uh, this becomes very prominent, this type of maneuver. And you don't have to uh, really all traditions from, you know, the more hardcore social Trinitarians to even evangelicalism, you have the, trin- uh, the Trinity being redefined as a society so that the persons are uh, sometimes even independent. Uh, they have their own centers of consciousness and even will. And if there's unity, it's a, a type of unity of uh, mutual cooperation. Well, this then becomes the prototype for just about every social agenda under the sun. <laughs> I remember right. Uh, right. In, in, in a lot of my research, just book after book, journal article after journal article, and it it there was no limit. It could be something like ecology, 
and in the environment. It could be something like uh, defining gender and the sexes. It certainly was pretty hip to make the social trinity the paradigm for politics, um, and then also ecclesiology. But what I found just uh, a bit unnerving at times was even within their own camp, they didn't agree with each other. <laughs> and so you have one social Trinitarian saying, well, I think the social Trinity should lead, um, I think it should lead to a type of uh, high church uh, polity. And another social Trinitarian saying, no way, uh, it should lead to a type of more egalitarian um, congregationalism. And on and on the discussions go. Uh, Anyway, I'm getting long-winded, but all of that was a bit of a wake-up call as I realized, wait a minute, at what, at what point are we actually manipulating the Trinity for our social, our, this type of uh, social agenda? And uh, I, I, found, I found that quite startling. Of course, it's not original to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I know you want to talk about history a little more. But I wanted to ask, I mean, isn't it, do you think that there's a, a sort of a good social Trinitarianism and, and a bad social Trinitarianism? Because, I mean, the, the person, and again, I'm well out of my depth here, but, but I mean, the persons of the Trinity do uh, have this, this eternal relationship with each other yeah. uh, of, of love and you know, their will, you know, God's will, is, you know, is in perfect accord. Uh, and I mean, it, 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 and and I should also say, I think for most evangelical lay people or Orthodox Christian lay people of any kind, the Trinity is just a difficult doctrine to talk about with, yeah. with precision. But I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I, I, of course, I, I think a lot about Jonathan Edwards and, you know, in his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love. Yeah. I mean, he talks about the, the you know, love between and among Godhead, and and it is kind of a perfect social relationship. So is it like the applications that make this bad? I mean, but you see, you seem to say that there's a more foundational problem here. Yeah, yeah, I think you're on to something there. Uh, we because you're you're right on the one hand. I mean, we certainly want to um, preserve uh, that that type of language in which we are understanding that these these are are real persons, um, uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we look at Scripture, um, we see uh, examples in which the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And actually, yeah, Edwards, or we could go back to Augustine, for example, whose who's, his book on the Trinity, I, I can't, um, it, well, it's been unsurpassed in, in so many ways. But Augustine will have a lot to say about the Holy Spirit uh, and identifying the Spirit as love. And of course, he's going to turn to someone like the Apostle Paul to make that point. Um, I think where the... Um, the hinge of the issue is, if, we, if I could put it that way, is whenever I have like a student or, or another colleague or, or um, someone out there come to me and say, you know, do we define the Trinity in social categories or not? Uh, the question I always come back to with them is, well, when you define the persons of the Trinity, how are you doing that? 
Um, right, are you right. going to uh, the assumptions we make about a human society and the way that you and I interact with each other in which we are separate from one another, we are individual mm. individuals, you have your own will, I have my own will. Um, I think the tendency is to then assume, oh, that that just must be how the, the Trinity works. Um, and so they co-op, the persons cooperate with each other. Um, the Father has his own will. The Son has his own will. The Holy Spirit has his own will. And, and then at that point, we introduce these other, which can be good categories, such as love. Um, the problem, if, if we make that assumption, right, um, the problem there is that, well, we, history can be our friend here. We run into all kinds of um, heretical uh, ditches on either side of the road, one of them being tritheism. And uh, almost every major social Trinitarian you read, there's a good reason why at some point, you can always count on it, usually about halfway through their work or maybe towards the end, they're going to say, but, 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 I, I know I'm getting this charge of tritheism. Let me explain why I'm not a tritheist. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, historically, that has been the accusation because it's very difficult to avoid something like tritheism. As soon as you start pushing in that direction of uh, the the persons as having relationships in a very kind of 20th century sense of that word, and especially them having their own wills or their own centers of consciousness, historically, um, and again, this is where, you know, as churchgoers and pastors, and uh, we, we have to really think carefully here, but historically, when the Trinity has been defined, um, the unity, if we ask, well, how, where where's the unity in the Trinity? The unity is not um, like it is with us in society. It's not like a, a cooperation between persons as if, you know, when we look at the Trinity, well, they just get along. <laughs> Uh, it's actually something more intrinsic, something far more fundamental than that. It's what uh, theologians and, and uh, going back to, you know, the fathers themselves, they looked at the basic fundamental teaching of monotheism and said, we believe in divine simplicity. By that, they didn't mean that the Trinity is like simple, easy to understand. We, we probably know by now it's not. <laughs> but by that, they meant uh, God, there's not just one God, but God is one. He's without parts. He's undivided. And so from there, they said, well, these persons can't be parts that somehow make God up or just merely cooperate with one another. To use some, some fancier uh, theological language, they said, no, the, the triune God is one in essence, and that one essence then subsists in these three persons, or they, sometimes they would say it has three modes of subsistence. And that's when they would say, well, how, how does, for example, this essence subsist in the Son? Well, the, the Son is eternally begotten from the Father's essence. Now, the, the, the difficulty, right, is that, well, that just doesn't sound as uh, quite as hip and cool, I suppose, or, or, or even as understandable uh, as, uh, you know, a a social definition of the Trinity. And so it's easier for one to catch on than the other. <laughs> but those yeah. are just a little bit of, uh, of an explanation. Right, right. And, and I mean, I, I'm working on a project now on Thomas Jefferson uh, and, you know, Jefferson and, and Adams and John Adams 
uh, once they kissed and made up after the 1800 yeah. presidential election, <laughs> uh, as it were, and, and, and get, they began engaging in in retirement and this in long, wonderful discussions about all kinds of things, including theology, and both yeah. of them were anti-trinitarian. Um, and you know, they they both said uh, that that this idea of three and one, when you look up close at it, it just, they, they said, it just simply doesn't make any sense. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. You, you know, and so it, it uh, and of course I think they're, they're wrong about that, but if you subject a doctrine like Trinity to the test of human rationality alone, or it, you know, trying to come up with categories from this world that we're familiar with and then apply it to the Trinity, well, that's that's just not going to work work yeah. out well. So yeah. you you know you end up. I mean you know evangelicals are not going to end up where Adams and Jefferson were. Yeah. Uh, but you could end up having a, a a sort of implication of tritheism. Yeah. Um, which which obviously is just you know disastrous theologically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and you know, that's an excellent point. You know, when we, whenever we talk about anything, you know, social Trinitarianism included, obviously it's very diverse. So, you know, I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. Um, and there's all kinds of nuances from theologian to theologian. So, you know, we have to make that qualification. It's an important one, but, um, I think, and, you know, as long as we're on the subject of evangelicals, um, when we look at evangelicalism, there, te- there is this tendency, and, and you've kind of hinted at it, either we we tend to go the direction of, uh, well, I'm just going to look for a Bible verse, and 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 just that's how I'm going to approach the Trinity, and, you know, just look for that kind of silver bullet proof text, and, well, that can be hugely problematic, um, and, and that can result in all kinds of problems, because the Trinity just isn't revealed that way to us in Scripture, um, or and this is more along the lines of your point, um, that tendency, if, if just for this, you know, like lack of a better word, if we could call it a, a bit of a rationalistic tendency that you're, you're pointing out in some of the American founders, well, that tendency can kind of seep in within our own camp too, where we then approach key doctrines, like we talked about, or even just the tr- the the uh, biblical and and Nicene understanding of the Trinity as a whole. And if we can't wrap our minds around it, if it doesn't seem logical enough, it, we, if, if, if it doesn't make sense, then, well, things start, cargo starts flying off the ship. Um, and, and then we're left to sort of piece things back together with, with missing pieces. So this, this, tendency, you know, one might be more in a pietistic direction, the other might be in a, a little bit more of a rationalistic direction. Um, there's there's all kinds of collateral damage. I guess I would I would suggest to, to our you know viewers and listeners that um, when you approach the doctrine of the Trinity, and we can talk more about this, but do so with humility. First of all, understand that um, this is a mystery. And we should we should approach it that way, knowing that our finite minds is going to take time and study. It's going to take hard work. But that what else would we expect when we're talking about God? Right. And, and then I guess the other thing I would say is um, don't do it alone. 
don't do it alone, which actually I, I would like to ask you, you, Tommy, you know, you've, you know, given your expertise on evangelicalism, you know, you've had a lot of experience in your own research and, and this just, you know, even as you were mentioning, just uh, in the church itself with uh, evangelical Christians. And, and sometimes that, that tendency is there to, to say, you know, as evangelicals, we want to say, right, well, we're committed to the scriptures. We're, we believe in the Bible. Uh, that's something that sets us apart in many ways. But at, at the same time, if we're not careful, um, we can then start to become a bit snobbish, <laughs> you know, a bit snobbish towards towards the past. Um, and when it comes to a doctrine like the Trinity, I'm, I'm guessing that, that that could be pretty deadly. Um, is this, what, what's your, what's been your experience when it comes to, to evangelicalism and, and just kind of what Lewis talked about, right? That, that type of chronological snobbery, um, towards, you know, almost this dichotomy. Well, I believe the Bible don't talk to me about creeds <laughs> or confessions. Yeah. Right, right. And that, that I think goes back to that individualistic impulse and, and, and it's a, it's also, I mean, there's a populist impulse, I think to, you know, that evangelicals have always been very good at, at kind of pr- presenting the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible in ways that regular people can understand. Um, and, and so there's been a premium, I think, on accessibility. Uh, and again, that that's a very good thing, um, but it has potential byproducts that are really problematic. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm sure you've heard the saying that, you know, the Bible is inerrant, but our interpretations are not. Uh, and, and so, uh, you, you know, a, one person sitting with the Bible um, is, is, is a really important part of evangelicalism, but uh, one person with the Bible, even someone who's very theologically learned, uh, can, can get themselves into trouble yeah. uh, and, and come up with all kinds of newfangled <laughs> thoughts and, and ideas. And, and, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm persuaded that uh, even though in Christ we have this, this unmediated access uh, to the Lord, that we all, uh, we all are part of a theological tradition. You know, it's, there's no way to be, you know, s- you know, sitting out at Walden Pond with Thoreau or something, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, of course, even he is, is heavily located in a theological tradition, even though he's acting like he's trying to be the lone individual sitting in his cabin by the pond, uh, yeah. you know, trying to discern the truth. And, and by the way, coming up with crazy theological ideas. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're all part of a tradition of whether we realize it or not, um, that, that we're located, uh, we have a background, uh, we, our, our, our pastors have influences, uh, you know, and, and our, our denomination, our church have, it, they, we're all influenced by some kind of, uh, of history. And so, you, you know, you, you would, you would like to, uh, make sure that part of the, those influences is what you call the dream team. Uh, yeah. which I know you want to yeah. wrap this up, but but I think we should get that out on the table too yeah. about uh, about 
you know, certainly if all you do is watch, you know, the latest YouTube videos or what, whatever it is, that's probably going to be a relatively impoverished, uh, you, you know, a theological view. Uh, and, and even if, even if all your influences are just born out of kind of late 20th century, 20th century, you, you know, social Trinitarian debates, uh, that's going to be relatively mm-hmm. impoverished. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our ultimate authority, of course, is, is the word of God. Uh, and that has a unique or revelatory status for us as, uh, as believers but we're also part of a cloud of witnesses, yeah. right? I mean, and 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 it would be foolish uh, to uh, neglect and ignore uh, the titans of of uh, of Christian theological tradition. And you know, I I always think uh, for evangelicals, yes, I mean, we're one hundred percent part of the you know the evangelical tradition, but that's also part of the Reformed tradition, mm-hmm. the Protestant tradition. The Augustinian tradition, and then the small O Orthodox. Yeah, you know, so so evangelical is you know a, a, a primary commitment for me, but it's not detached from those um, increasingly broader uh, theological historical traditions that we're part of. Yeah, yeah, you know that that's so, such a so healthy, I think. Um, and if if we could. You know, you and your world of, of history and my my world of, of theology, if, if uh, we can get and persuade and cultivate, really, is maybe the better word, cultivate that type of mindset to say to evangelicals today, to say, yes, I am uh, an evangelical, but why is that the case? What, what, what does evangelical even mean? And uh, at that Indeed. point... <laughs> It should, it should, and of course, that's the, the million dollar question, right? But, it, but hopefully, historically, that should then take them beyond their present moment to say, let me actually do some digging. Do I have, do I have roots here? Um, you know, and you mentioned the dream team, of course, which I, I'm, I'm always happy to, to uh, capitalize on. Uh, when we go back to uh, the past, especially on a doctrine like the Trinity, um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, we, we have help and, and that's actually liberating in many ways, uh, very liberating to say, actually, we can go back to this great tradition of voices. Um, and it's not as if, uh, you know, all has been lost, everything's been dark ages and from, you know, the apostles to now, actually there's this great tradition behind us. And when it comes to a doctrine like the Trinity, well, Surprise, surprise! Uh, there was a whole s- centuries, really, of of church fathers, uh, from someone like an Athanasius to um, a gr- to a Gregory of Nazianzus to a to a great Western thinker like uh, Augustine, and of course others later, even in the medieval period, like Anselm and Aquinas. The list just goes on, and I think what um, you know what pe- evangelicals will find. And this will just, uh, I, I think, be a pleasant surprise as they'll find, wait a minute, I am standing on the shoulders of a rich tradition here. And yes, the Bible is my final authority, the only infallible uh, written revelation. 
But at the same time, um, I I don't come to it neutral. I come to it standing on the shoulders of these uh, of, of these uh, this great tradition, this dream tri- dream team, as I like to call it. And uh, for that reason, I have a cloud of witnesses to help me as I interpret the Bible. And so, <clears throat> just to to use you know the example we were talking about earlier. Um, with, say, uh, love, for example. Well, we could just make all kinds of assumptions about how love is defined in the 20th century, and we could just assume that's the case with the Trinity, but that could lead us into all kinds of Trinitarian errors. And so what I, I, I like to suggest to people is, let's take a different approach. Um, let's go back to the scriptures, of course, but let's be careful we don't read our modern understanding of love into whatever the scriptures say. Let's look for help. How how did the Nicene tradition understand love in a way that, yes, uh, emphasized it, but interpreted it within those biblical and Nicene categories from divine simplicity uh, to these eternal relations of origin? Um, And when we start to to take that adventure on, well, then we discover actually there are ways to very faithfully preserve these biblical and orthodox teachings um, and simultaneously avoid some of those sometimes innocent mistakes, but big mistakes as well. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Is there anything else you you wanted to talk about? No, I mean, I again it's it's been great to just have this conversation with you tommy um you know we don't often get to do this especially in covid times uh that's right that's right uh, we're, we're sort of sort of trapped in our uh studies or our, our own homes so it's just been great getting to, to talk to you and hear some of your historical insight um yeah i i again i would say to to viewers hey if uh, pick up Tommy's book on evangelicalism. I think you will find uh, a lot of help there. And uh, yeah, if you want to dig deeper on the Trinity, um, my book, Simply Trinity, is out and, and uh, pick it up and, and get some pens and highlighters and start digging through it as well. Great. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Yeah, good talking to you, Tommy. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.